our background music. How many of you were here this morning for the morning class? Okay, almost everybody. Okay, very nice. Are we, do we have translation going on back there? You are translated. So who's taking care of the table if you're translating? Okay, we will manage. So we are looking at how to live in the world in a way that we are Krishna conscious and in a way that we lead a satisfying life on every level. And this is the science of Varna Dharma. So I'm working right now with the co-author, uh, Rukmini Devi Dasi, also known as Dr. Ruchira Dutta. went out. Maybe you, you No? I'm fine here. Maybe it's cable. Cable. So this morning we looked at eight individual principles of Varna Dharma and four systemic principles. Does anybody remember what they are? So we'll do a quick review. Anybody remember what any of the principles are? Dharma. Uh, work in, in, in whatever your, your, your nature is. Yes, okay. So the first one is work according to your nature. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Anybody remember any of the other principles? Honest work. Honest work. And we defined honest work as having several parts. Do you remember? Yes. Honest payment. Honest payment. Yes, and what else? Shouldn't harm not doing any harm, and value is another one. So value is another principle. Excellent. But in honesty, fair exchange, not doing harm, and genuinely meeting people's needs, not manufactured needs. Not manufacturer's needs. Remember I talked about the nail buffer? Yeah. That's a manufactured need that nobody needed that? Okay, so then the next principle is doing work of value, which you can only do when you act as an agent for people's spirituality. All right? Then the fourth principle was giving in charity, sharing your wealth. The fifth one was regularly worshipping the Supreme. The sixth one was taking care of your sources of wealth, your body, your mind, other people, the way you enjoy riches, your field of wealth, the next was taking care of your field of wealth itself. And the last was no egoism and no lethargy, right? Based on Bhagavad Gita 3.30. Does anyone remember the four principles of systemic, on a systems level, for Varna Dharma? Cooperation. Cooperation between the fields. Yes, the, the four fields. And cooperation between them. Competition within the field, that the fields balance each other and regulate each other, and that everything should be what? The last one was everything should be sustainable. Yes. Prosperity should be sustainable, not growth, 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 growth. All right? So now we're going to be looking at our nature using our nature. The first principle of Varna Dharma 
using our nature as the source of our livelihood. Connecting nature and livelihood. So the first question is, what do we mean by our nature? Well, we mean something we enjoy, something we're good at, something that gives us a sense of accomplishment, and something that also gives us some challenge, a way of going forward. Generally, our nature is so natural to us that it's something that we do all the time in one way or another. We're all always acting according to our nature. In fact, we can't stop it. Krishna is very clear in the Bhagavad Gita that there's no question of do I act by my, according to my nature or do I not. The question is more do I recognize it and do I use it properly and do I use it for my livelihood. Okay? So how are we going to figure out what it is? Well, first of all, we can look at our childhood. Often in childhood, our nature was manifested in ways that our parents tried to stop. Parents, unfortunately, are not very expert at recognizing their children's nature, especially if the children have a very different nature from the parents. But I can give you some very simple examples of, okay, I'll just give you some, we'll come back to this. Uh, for, I'll just give you a simple example of myself. So when I was three years old, I was going to a preschool. I think you call it like a kindergarten. And the teacher had a complaint about me. And the whole time I was growing up, my parents would repeat to me this complaint about me and say, you have to stop doing this. What do you think my teacher complained about? You were asking too much. I was asking a lot of questions. Yes. What else? What was I doing? I was looking at books, yeah, but there was a big thing that, that my teacher complained about. Preaching. Huh? Preaching. What, I'm sorry? Preaching. Was I preaching? Uh, not quite yet. But you're very close. Speaking about talking. Not yet. Talking on the wrong time. Not dark. Like two sides and something. No, definitely not. Thanks for that one. Another life, maybe. No. You're the closest. Talking too much. You got the closest to it. You were challenging? What was I challenging them about? Why do you have to do things? No, not so much. The huh? I was correcting the teacher, yeah. But about what? What was I trying to be? I was trying to be the teacher. You got it. So the teacher complained to my parents and said, your daughter doesn't act like one of the students. She's always trying to be 
The teacher. And she's always telling us how to teach. So the teacher saw this as a very big problem. And the teacher told my parents it was a problem. And my parents saw it as a very big problem. And as I was growing up, whenever I'd act like a teacher, my parents would say, See? You're doing it again. Just like your teacher said. Stop it. It wasn't until I was 24 and I met a devotee named Jyotir Mayi that I realized I am a teacher. It's all I've done my whole life. My parents did not recognize my nature. Not only did they not nurture it and encourage it, they tried to squash it. But they couldn't because it's my nature. Another example, I know a young man, actually a devotee, and his parents and his brothers and sisters were always telling him, stop minding everyone else's business. Concentrate on what you're doing. And he would be told this ten times a day, every day, his whole life. Then he went to Poland and he managed the whole stage program. And all the devotees loved him. Why? That's not important. Why? Because he was very good at managing everybody else's business. He's a manager. He's a leader. But it drove his parents crazy. And they were always telling him to stop. I, I know another kid who was always, you know, going to the front of the room and the parents were saying, stop showing off, stop being the center of attention. This is also a devotee kid. Guess what? She's an actress. <laughs> I know another devotee kid who was always reading, studying philosophy, and the, another devotee kid, and the parents were saying, get your nose out of the book, get your nose out of the computer, can't you notice something needs to be done? Why don't you ever notice anything around you? And guess what he's become? A scientist. So these are all instances, and there's many, many more instances that can be given, where our nature annoys our parents or the other our teachers or other people in our environment. If you can think about what if people told you your whole life to stop doing and you couldn't stop doing it. Or I know another family where the mother is a very serious scholarly kind of person and the kid is really, you know, people oriented and, and the mother would say, Stop being so frivolous. This girl was one of my students and she came to me and said, Mother Ermila, I can't be a devotee because I've tried to be more serious and I can't do it. I can't change who I am. 
and the only way I can be a devotee is to be more serious. I said, no, why don't you just go on a festival tour <laughs> and you can get to party all the time. So one way to understand our nature is what have we been doing our whole life? We've tried to stop it. Other people have tried to stop it. Maybe people have even told us it's bad and it doesn't go away. Because our nature, it won't go away with rewards, with punishment, with circumstances, with anything. It's who we are, at least in this life. So that's one way to understand what is our nature. What are my tendencies? It's also like, what do I do automatically? Like breathing. Many times we're not even aware of our nature because it's so obvious and intuitive to us that we just don't pick up on it. We don't see that it's a special quality. Maybe we think everybody knows how to do it. I was just talking with one young devotee girl and she was, her mother was telling me, oh yeah, my daughter is always able to understand how other people are feeling. And I, I looked at her and I said, is that true? And she said, oh yeah, I can always pick up on other people's feelings. She said, but you know, people don't always like it. That I always know how they're feeling. And I said, that is your gift. And she said, oh, doesn't everybody do that? And I'm like, no, <laughs> they don't. So often we see our gift as something difficult, or we may see our gift and just assume everybody can do it. We just think, oh yeah, it's just normal. It appears to us as something just normal. It's just the way things are. But something we do as easily as breathing, we don't have to be asked to do it. We do it even when we're asked not to do it. We don't need to be paid to do it. And when we're acting that way, we just, we feel that we're really expressing ourselves. So that's one way of understanding what nature is. At the same time, nature has to be nurtured. Like, I didn't really know I was a teacher until I met Jyotirmayi. I met somebody who said, hey, you can teach children like this. And you can have a mood like this. And as soon as somebody gave me some instruction and some encouragement, I'm like, oh, I'm really good at this. And I really like it. But I didn't know until I got in the right circumstance. So many times it's a question of meeting the right person, being in the right situation that brings it out in us. Which is why generally in education for young children, you give them exposure to all different sorts of situations. One advantage of traveling to different ISKCON centers and going in different situations is you can try different things and meet different people. And sometimes you meet that person or you're in that situation that brings out something in you and you're like, wow, I really like this. I'm really good at this. This is something that I really enjoy. And whatever nature we have, it needs nourishment. We need training in the values of our nature, in the skills of our nature, and in the information that underlies how to do well in our nature. Right? Let's look at two different categorizations 
in the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam that indicates the kinds of nature we should have. So one are the six kinds of ways of being rich. Because we're talking about using our nature to earn our livelihood. Why do we want to use our nature to earn our livelihood? Why not just earn our livelihood in whatever is convenient and use our nature, you know, as a hobby? Anyone have any idea why Krishna wants to connect our nature with our source of living? Yeah? Will we suffering otherwise? We will suffer otherwise, definitely. And an even more important reason. That's what we can do the best. Take that to the next step. We will do it with our hearts, yes. Some other ideas. People will be happy with our service. Other people will be happier, yes. You can do it for a long time. You can sustain it, yes. We talked about the principle of sustainability, yes. And we will develop more. Yes, we will develop more, absolutely. Yes. Oh, that's so beautiful. God has a plan for all of us. We are part of the universal body of the Lord. Our nature has a place in that universal body. And when we use our nature to earn our livelihood, we contribute to the health of the whole universal body. You see, materialistic people talk about working according to your nature, working according to your passion, doing what you like. That concept isn't unique to Krishna consciousness. But what I find is unique is they're looking, generally speaking, just at individual satisfaction, whereas we're also looking at the satisfaction of the whole social body. Because we're seeing the whole social body is the body of God. Just like we have a body, and I'll be healthiest if my heart acts like a heart and my brain acts like a brain, right? So society in general will be more peaceful, less crime, more prosperity, more satisfaction if everyone's way of living is in accord with their nature. Does this make sense to everybody? So when we choose a livelihood that fits my nature, I'm not only contributing to my own material happiness, which I am undoubtedly in very significant and deep ways, but I am also contributing to society and I am also pleasing Krishna. Just the act of earning my livelihood in a way that is my nature pleases Krishna in the same way that I am pleased when my eyes act like eyes. It makes me happy. If my stomach acts like a stomach, I'm happy. Yes? If your stomach doesn't act like a stomach, you're not happy. If your brain doesn't act like a brain, you're not happy. Isn't it? If your brain isn't working properly, you're not happy. If your foot falls asleep and you can't walk, your foot doesn't act like a foot, you're not happy. We're part of Krishna. Krishna wants us to earn our livelihood according to our nature. He wants us to do that for our happiness as an individual. He cares about us. He wants us to do that because it makes him happy and it makes all of society happy. It's such a beautiful way to practice bhakti. 
just to do that. And it's what we want to do anyway. So when we talk about a livelihood, we're saying, how will I live? And when we think about how will I live, we're thinking about how will I have wealth. Correct? Now, generally when you talk about wealth, people think in terms of cash. How many euros or whatever currency you may have in your country do I have in my pocket or in my bank account? And that's wealth. My dear friends, that is a very limited view of wealth. First of all, money is only wealth when you spend it. Unspent money has no meaning except for some mental idea of security. Right? Does that make sense? If you had 100,000 euros and you weren't spending it, you wouldn't be rich. If you weren't using it for anything. You could be, you know, homeless on the street with nothing to eat with 100,000 euros in the bank. And it's the thing you spend your money on that makes you prosperous, not the money itself. If you have that prosperity without having to spend money, then you also are prosperous. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. You can have kinds of wealth where you get them in ways other than spending money. You get them through relationships, you get them through exchanges. There's all different ways to be prosperous other than just money, which is used to get that prosperity. The money in and of itself is not prosperity. We want to look for a livelihood that gives us the particular kind of prosperity that we enjoy. And we do not all enjoy the same kind of prosperity to the same extent. So that's one of the keys. What kind of career should I have is what kind of wealth do I want to enjoy? Now we talked about the principle of not wanting to enjoy wealth separately from Krishna, right? You remember that? Of enjoying these opulences through Krishna, that when we enjoy them through Krishna, we're working under the spiritual energy of Radharani. If I try to enjoy them separately, I'm in, under the material energy of Durga. So do keep that in mind. Okay, we're going to look at the six ways of being rich. And all of these are the energies, the sub-energies of the internal energy. So we have something called Aishvarya. Aishvarya comes from the Sanskrit word Ishwara. What does Ishwara mean? Controller. This is the wealth of power, of leadership, of control. This is like, you know, the devotee I talked about who is always minding everyone else's business. He's a leader. This is a leadership of power. Okay? This is a leadership of power where you're able to understand what other people need, you're able to provide for their needs, you're able to lead with strength, with vision. It also is an opulence or a wealth of autonomy. You all know what autonomy means? Where you're able to have control over your own life, where you're able to make your own decisions, where other people aren't really telling you what to do. So careers that involve this wealth of Aishvarya would be where you are have a supervisory role, a leadership role, or maybe a role where you run your own source of wealth, where you don't have somebody else who's your boss 
and you have a lot of autonomy. Then we have the wealth of virya. Virya means strength. It can mean strength of mind. It can mean strength of body. It also means sexual strength. Someone who wants to have a lot of children or take care of children. People who are athletes. People who are dancers. People who work in the health, the healing professions, because Virya d- deals a lot with health. So if you're really into good health and vitality and strength and vigor, then you might have some career where you're using your physical capacities in some way. Maybe you're building buildings or you're plowing with animals or you're teaching people how to be healthy. If that, if that kind of richness appeals to you. Then we have the richness of Yasha. So Yasha means fame. But Yasha is actually a person whose parents are Kirti and Dharma. Kirti means fame in the sense that people are talking about you, like we have Kirtan. But Kirti could mean also people are saying bad things about you. And Kirti could mean people are talking about you even if you haven't done anything good, like people who are famous for being famous. Right? But Yasha is Kirti with Dharma. You're famous for being a good person. You're famous for doing the right thing. And this is really the wealth of community. In other words, it's the richness. You have people who love you. You have people who respect you, and they love you and respect you because you're a respectable person. So people who like to work with community, people who like to be surrounded by a, by a lot of loving people to develop community and, and who really like to work according to dharma, if you like to be a very ethical, moral, fair, just person, and if you like to be in an atmosphere of great appreciation, you like to appreciate others, have them appreciate you, then you want to go into some career where you're working somehow with community or with fairness and ethics. Then there's the wealth or prosperity of Sri. So Sri means beauty, grace, splendor, majesty. Sri also means ruling power, but Aishvarya is is more of a ruling power, and Sri is more of a ruling charisma. It's more of a ruling splendor and very much connected with some idea of royalty or elegance or uh, could involve with fashion, uh, painting, music, any of the arts, gardening, or just wanting an atmosphere that's very beautiful and very splendorous or working in some way with charisma or somehow connecting with people's finer qualities. Then there's the wealth of jnana. So jnana means knowledge and wisdom. Cultivating awareness. Maybe research or study or teaching or communication or counseling or one of the intuitive healing arts. Then we're looking at vairagya. The opulence of vairagya I think is very poorly understood. Many people think the wealth of vairagya means you don't have pleasure, because vairagya means without passion, but it is another opulence, it is another kind of wealth. And 
one can enjoy vairagya as much as you can enjoy anything else. Vairagya means equilibrium, detachment, a sense of mercy, of forgiveness, of balance, of harmony. It also can mean a lot of freedom. You can go where you want. You can do what you want, when you want, how you want. A person who enjoys the richness of vairagya is not very interested in whether people praise them or not. They're probably not that interested in community development, right? It just, those things are not important to them. They're often not so interested in material objects like furniture and cars and those things, but they want a way they can develop in freedom. Okay, let's give you some, let's give you some practical examples of the relationship between career and the six types of wealth, all right? So, right, if I read, this is from the draft of our book. So, this is just a draft. It hasn't been edited yet. And these are all based on real people and, in fact, real devotees. Mike is a traveling musician who, with his wife, page, writes... Page. The page in my unpublished book. Mike is a traveling musician who, with his wife, writes and performs songs about philosophy. That work provides the wealth of jnana through the song's messages, shri in the beauty of the music itself, and vairagya in their traveling minimalistic lifestyle. Did you all get that? Yes. They're traveling musicians. They teach philosophy in their songs. So they're getting jnana in the songs, shri in the beauty of the music, and vairagya in the fact that they're traveling musicians. Do you see that? How those three kind of riches help them to understand their career? Okay. Chris helps businesses set up management software. He customizes the software package for their needs and trains people within the company to use that software themselves for increased management effectiveness and efficiency. His career brings him a top salary and a position of leadership also helping others to become leaders and increase their profit. Chris has some degree of autonomy in his work and has an expanding customer base. So primarily he is enjoying Aishvarya. Right? He's a leader of others. He's training others to be leaders. He's also constantly learning and helping others to learn. So he's enjoying the wealth of Gyan. Okay? Nar runs an organic farm that includes a compassionate, no-kill dairy. He's constantly learning about crops and farming techniques and enjoys having visitors to teach in person as well as sharing his knowledge online. He's very muscular and gets a good workout from the physical labor of farm work. Nar loves selling milk and produce to the community and has regular community gatherings in his large house. The prosperity of his career is mostly in virya. It's mostly in health and strength. He's very strong, and he's contributing to people's health through his farm products and his milk products. To some extent, Nar also enjoys yasa, because he's building community, and yana, because he's spreading knowledge. Vati is a web designer and artist. She works from home on a flexible schedule, keeping track of her hours and billing customers. 
She mostly works for nonprofits, friends, and family members. The primary way in which her career brings her prosperity are Sri, through the aesthetics of her work. She's a web designer, she's working with art. Vairagya, because she has freedom and flexibility in the job. To a lesser degree, she has the richness of Yasha through doing good work in community. Do you follow that? Would you like me to read a couple more examples? More examples? Chuck is, is studying to be an astronomer. He loves working at the visitor center for one of the best telescopes in the world. He especially enjoys the appreciation of the guests when he teaches about the night sky outside with a laser. In the visitor center itself, one can see many of his stunning photographs of various astronomical phenomena. Having a scientific career naturally includes the richness of Gyan. Through the primary way in which Chuck's career gives him a sense of prosperity is in the praise of community, or Yasha, as well as in the beauty of the sky in his photographs and Sri. Jiva Dasi teaches classical East Indian dancing. Any dance form involves physical strength and endurance, virya, combined with beauty and grace, Sri. She not only teaches dance, but uses dance to teach traditional stories and philosophy to both her students and the community in general. So she also has Gyan and Yasha. Paul, this is the last one. Paul is a landlord. He is expert at building and repair as well. He has matured in his career to the point that he has hired managers and secretaries to care for his properties and only needs to work a few hours a week. The rest of the time he spends in study and writing, teaching a class in philosophy once a week. Although his career technically gives the prosperity of Aishvarya in the sense of his having a lot of money and a position of leadership, the primary types of wealth Paul is enjoying are Vairagya and Gyan, though neither of these come directly from his career, but rather from the leisure time the Aishvarya of his career allows him to have. Did you all get some sense? These are all real examples. I changed the names. But they're all real examples of real devotees. A number of these are devotee youth, second generation, and a couple third generation devotees. So is that fairly clear? Yes. Okay. Now we're going to go to what you're probably more familiar with. Close the windows for the sound a minute. It's like burning hot. Okay, so now we're going to go to the fields of work. And we talked a little bit about the fields of work this morning. So we have the four fields are artistry. Yeah, please open it. Otherwise, you all must be hot too, right? As soon as we close the windows, it's like became a sweatbox. So we have the field of artistry, the field of resources, the field of government, and the field of ideas. So I talked about these this morning. I'm just going to review them very quickly. So the field of artistry is what produces rasa in society, or taste, pleasure. Without the field of artistry, there is no rasa in society at all. So in this field, people provide all the beauty and function in society. It's connected with the mula chakra and the swadhisthan chakra. The field of resources is the only field that generates wealth. It generates wealth from the natural resources of the world. 
particularly from the land, the water, the sky, and the animals. It's the only field that creates wealth. People in this field create wealth for themselves and for distribution, and they're really interested in identifying and controlling the flow of wealth. These people are connected with the Manipur chakra in the universal body. Then there's a field of government. So government, of course, makes and enforces laws and also provides for everyone's care. Provides, make sure everyone has water and roads and protection and schools. So sometimes even non-governmental organizations do this kind of work. And then there's also this kind of work that's done by like super government agencies such as the UN and NATO. Then you have the field of ideas. These are the people that provide wisdom, guidance, truth, and education. In oh, the government is associated with the Anahata or the heart chakra. So in the field of ideas, these are the teachers in every, for every other occupation, the counselors, the priests, the writers, the journalists, the scientists, and the doctors. And these people are concerned with the Vishuddha and the Agya chakra. Okay. So many times when we look in the scriptures, we find only descriptions of people who are expert in each of the fields. And uh, Rukmini and I were discussing that that situation is a problem because when you're just looking for your career, you're not already expert. And so if you read the descriptions of how to be expert in the career, you might say, well, that doesn't relate to me. That, that's not me. So we're going to look at each field in terms of your initial immature proclivities. You understand proclivities? Your inclination, the, the signs. It, just like when I was a child, there were signs that I was a teacher. Was I a good teacher when I was three? What do you think? No, I was a terrible teacher when I was three. Is there any way maybe they could turn the volume down? Is that possible? Yes. Okay. Because otherwise we all have to bake in here. Someone's already asking. Okay. Because I feel like I'm really competing with them. So we want to look at what are the indications when you're 3 or when you're 15 or when you're 20 that I should go into this particular field. And then we're also going to look at the people who are expert. Now, by expert, we don't just mean expert in the skills. We also mean expert in the values of Varna. And that's a very important distinction. Because a materialist could be expert in these fields in terms of getting the work done, but they're not going to be expert in working in harmony with Krishna and in harmony with your real self. Okay, let's look first at the field of artistry. So, ways you can tell that you're suited for this field is you really enjoy saying... I made that, I cleaned that, I fixed that. You really like to use tools to make things, or maybe you like to use your body as a tool. You like to help others. You like to see other people using what you make. You like painting a picture that hangs in someone else's house. You know, designing clothing that somebody else is wearing. 
uh, you like doing things that other people are using. An expert in the field of artistry is particularly authentic and honest. Honesty is one of the most important qualities for experts in the field of, honest, of artistry. Also, an expert in this field is satisfied with their work itself. These people in this field have a natural sense of simplicity and satisfaction. They're satisfied if they can do good quality work and they really enjoy their craft, they have good family, they have good friends, and they feel that they're helping others, that's enough for them to be happy in life. The main questions that people in the field of artistry ask about their work are, is it beautiful? Is it supportive? So those are, if those are some of your most important questions about the things that you do, is it beautiful? Is it supportive? Those are indicators that you may belong in the field of artistry. Can I, let me finish and then ask because it may be answered. Can you hold it? Okay. In the field of resources, the initial disposition, you like to play with land, with crops, with animals, or with money. You're very ambitious, rarely satisfied. Bhagavatam says, always thirsty. So people in the field of artistry are very easily satisfied. They have their craft, they have their family and friends, they're making people happy, it's enough. In the field of resources, never satisfied. Always want to get more, always want to do it better. Probably taking risks, much more goal-oriented. In the field of artistry, people may be more process-oriented in addition to being goal-oriented. An expert in the field of resources is a systems thinker. They can understand flows of resources and redirect those flows toward themselves in order to tap into them. Now these are particularly flows of resources because they know that they must maintain themselves first. People in the field of resources are not sentimental and they're not just thinking of the welfare of society. They are focused on, I've got to be rich, I've got to be prosperous myself in order to have a sustainable career. I'm not going to be able to spread the flow of resources to everyone else unless I can sustain myself first. This is very important. That tendency is most marked in the field of resources. That the people understand, I have to be making a profit. I have to be getting something out of this before I can do any good to anybody. Otherwise, if I fail, I can't serve anybody else. Uh, these people also, uh, the experts in this field, also tend to be very charitable. They're often patrons of the arts and really support all the fine arts and beauty in society. The main questions people suited for this field ask is, is it sustainable and is it regenerative? Is it sustainable and is it regenerative? Again, when we're talking about experts in these fields, we're not talking about just somebody who's expert on a mundane level, but someone who's expert on the, all the principles of Varna Dharma that we talked about this morning. Is that clear? 
expert in not only a mundane sense, but also in a spiritual sense. So the field of government. So initial disposition, really caring about fairness and rules and ethics and morality. Wanting to make people happy. Especially wanting to make people happy by giving them what they need. Not by making things for them or doing services for them as in the field of artistry, but making sure they're provided for. A sense of heroism in wanting to care for people and protect them. Maybe people who also argue or fight easily. People who have a lot of courage and kind of a tough skin and have kind of a take charge mentality. An expert in the field of government, and again, this is expertise not just technically, but also holistically. They're goal-oriented, decisive, determined, systems thinkers. They know and detect flows not in natural resources, but in human society. They can see emerging trends and needs in human society. The scriptures talk about heroism, power, determination, resourcefulness, courage in battle, generosity, and leadership. The main questions these people ask about their career is, is it just? Meaning, is it fair? Is it honorable? Is it just or fair? And is it honorable? In the field of ideas, an initial disposition you like to play with ideas or language or mathematics to try to find truth. Always, you know, somehow playing with language, math, or ideas to find truth. Insatiably curious. Seeing the patterns in ideas, relationships, and systems. Maybe liking to teach, may like to research, may like to study. An expert in the field of ideas is peaceful and forgiving, self-controlled, austere, pure, tolerant, honest, knowledgeable, wise, religious. They like to collect knowledge, understand it, use it, and share it. Their main questions are, is it true? Is it wise? Is it true? Is it wise? So again, looking at the questions, in the field of artistry, is it beautiful? Is it supportive in the field of resources? Is it sustainable? Is it regenerative in the field of government? Is it just or fair? Is it honorable in the field of ideas? Is it true? Is it wise? Of course you can say we all care about all of these, but what do we care about the most? Now, if someone says, well, I care about all of them the most, I can't decide at all, then such a person is probably in the field of artistry that supports the other three fields. Also, sometimes a person may care about the, the questions in the field of artistry and the questions in another field. That generally indicates that they work in the field of artistry supporting that field. So they may work in the field of artistry supporting those in the field of government or work in the field of artistry supporting those in the field of resources or work in the field of artistry supporting those who are in the field of ideas. 
Did you have? Did your question get answered on that, or do you still want to ask? Um, well, the field of artistry deals with beauty and function in society. So supportive, you can think about like the base of this lamp is supporting the lamp. The field of artistry supports the whole society. So, you know, Rukmini and I really struggled over that word. We were looking maybe at helpful, but everybody wants to be helpful, you know, that really didn't make it. And, you know, is it functional, but everything is functional, so that really didn't make it. But supportive, am I doing things to help and support other people? So I'm, because the field of artistry, again, it's creating all the beauty in society comes from the field of artistry, all of it. And all of the ability to function in society comes from the field of artistry. So the primary concerns would be with creating that beauty and function, to be able to support others in this society. Is that clear? Support could be also assisting other people? A support could be assisting other people, but it might be indirect. It might not be direct. If I build a building, I'm support that's supportive, but I'm not helping you directly. If I'm your secretary, I'm supporting you directly. But if I'm building a building, I'm supporting you indirectly. Yes? Could it be like the other way around? So somehow primarily people have ideas and secondarily artistry? Or does it have to be artistry for the... Well, people in the field of ideas, government, and resources may use things in the field of artistry because things in the field of artistry are the only things that create rasa. There's no other work that creates rasa, only the field of artistry. So therefore, people in the other three fields will often do things from the field of artistry as hobbies. Or they may use them in their work. You know, they may employ people in the field of artistry to communicate their ideas, for example, but they may also do some of that themselves. I mean, a teacher may create a beautiful visual display, for example. So it's not that nobody ever uses anything from the other fields. You know, we, we may each use things from various fields in our work. But the question is, what are you doing primarily? Does that make sense? Very good question. Anyone else have some questions on this before I get to the uh, what to be careful of? Okay, I want to look at um, how we combine these. How we combine, we talked about it already somewhat, but, okay, so combining the six ways of being rich with the four fields of action. So again, I'm going to read from our unpublished book. So, on the basis of everyday observation, it seems that certain, form, certain forms of wealth are, to a large extent, naturally produced in certain fields, just as particular types of trees grow more abundantly in specific geographic regions. Each of the six types of wealth is enjoyed in all fields distributed throughout society from the field where it is produced. Additionally, anyone in any field can add value to a form of wealth and increase it. 
We suggest that the wealth of Sri, splendid beauty, gracefulness, charismatic leadership, is mainly the product of the field of artistry. And the wealth of Aishwarya, organizational leadership, money, and luxury, is the primary product of those in the field of resources. Those in the field of government distribute and organize Aishwarya. Virya, strength, power, and health, is to a large extent produced by those in the field of resources in terms of, for example, individuals gaining vigor from food and those in the field of government produce this wealth in the sense of community protection from crime and foreign enemies, as well as public works that provide virtual and physical infrastructure for society as a whole. Jnana, or knowledge, is naturally the product of the field of ideas. Yasha, meritorious fame and community, is mainly the product of the field of government, connected with the highest expression in all fields. Vairagya, equanimity, freedom, is primarily a product of those in the field of ideas, which is then used in the field of government and in the field of resources, as persons in both those fields must distribute money and resources rather than keeping it all for themselves. Vairagya, which those in the field of ideas generate, finds its use in the field of artistry when workers feel inspired to be satisfied with their craft. In order to understand how to match our nature to career, we can combine the six ways to be rich with the four fields of action in terms of what we have a natural taste to enjoy. We can then narrow down our career choices within a field. Let's look at two forms of wealth. So this is just example with two. So we didn't give example with all six. So we're going to look at virya and vairagya. So virya, again, is strength, power, and health, and vairagya is equanimity and freedom in connection with each of the four fields as a sample. For example, the wealth of virya could combine with the field of artistry in careers as a builder, athlete, or dancer. Virya and the field of government could yield the occupation of soldier, firefighter, or police officer. In the field of resources, the wealth of virya could mean a career as a farmer or a business person dealing with health products. Combining virya with the field of ideas might mean a, a career as a teacher of martial arts or yoga. Vairagya and the field of ideas can mean living as a religious clergy or a medical person in an area of poverty. Vairagya can combine with the field of government in careers as a judge. Vairagya and the field of resources could combine in a job where a business gives the bulk of its profits to charity. Vairagya in the field of artistry might be found in the job of a mountain guide or designing tiny houses out of discarded items and containers. While any form of wealth can combine with any field to indicate specific careers, generally those who like to so-called play in specific fields tend to also have a strong taste for the kind of richness that naturally grows in that field. In fact, one indication that one is in the proper field is a liking for the dominant form of prosperity in that field. Is that fairly clear? Okay. Now we're going to look at some cautions. Okay. So our first caution we talked about a little bit already, the difficulty between nature and nurture. Right? That we might not have the same nature as our family, and we might not even get support from our family or our friends in establishing our career. 
So we're going to look here at some scenarios of people whose nature may or may not have been nurtured by their family and their society. All right? You all right with some scenarios? I know re when I reading is not as engaging as when I'm just speaking, but is that okay that I'm reading? Yes. Everyone's okay with that? Okay, so we're going to have a scenario for each of the fields. So this is for the field of resources. Now, these examples are compilations of real people. So they're not explanation of just one real people, one real person, as I did before, but it's compilations. And here I tried to pick names from different cultures. Ren's father has a university degree in science and runs his own computer business. This is an example for a person in the field of resources. His mother runs a tutoring business. Ren taught himself all basic mathematical computation algorithms by the time he was four. When he was seven, he decided that his mother's students might need office supplies. He convinced his father to help him source high-quality supplies at wholesale prices, which he then sold to the students for a small profit. Ren loved to play games, mostly ones that involved strategy and memorization, and he was very competitive and hated to lose. Ren used to get in trouble with his parents and teachers for refusing to follow rules and wanting to do things his own way. Adults also often got annoyed with him because he would tell them how to manage things better. He started a food business when he was nine, making frozen treats from fresh juice and selling them to his father's customers. He helped in his father's business from the age of four, at first getting paid to take out the trash and later learning how to build and repair computers as well as doing accounting. Ren started working regular jobs when he was 16, and by the time he was 20, he was managing a textile company when he got a university degree in business. Ren gradually learned about various aspects of running a company until he became a general consultant to many kinds of business. That work enabled him to work from home part-time and help his wife with childcare, but it also involved some travel to business locations. In this scenario, we find Ren with a natural joy in finding opportunities for moving the flow of resources to help others and gain financial benefit for himself. He was fortunate to gain experiences in production and business, which left favorable impressions upon him, although he also irritated his family and teachers with his strongly held views of improving systems of resource flow. Were you able to follow that as I was reading it? So we'll look at from the field of ideas. Leah's father was a computer programmer and her mother did social work. Leah was always cheerful and responsible and kept to herself. As a child, she would spend many hours writing stories and researching ideas of science and history. Leah often got so absorbed in her reading, research, and writing that she lost track of time. Her parents frequently admonished her for being unaware of her surroundings and uninvolved in family matters. Leah also got in trouble for asking endless questions, especially at around age 12. When she took up an area of study, she would carefully read the books on the topic and put into practice what she was studying. Leah often went to the library and took out books on science. When she was a teenager, her family moved to an area near the ocean. In the local university, she took an introductory class on marine biology, where she loved the professor's interactive teaching style and extensive fieldwork. By the time Leah was 27, 
She had a career along with her husband doing field research for the university in marine biology in ways she could also involve her children. In this scenario, Leah as a child demonstrates her taste for research, study, and writing, along with some social detachment. As a teenager or young adult, she was able to gain direct impressions of a scientific career. Again, we note that her tendencies attracted some criticism from family members during childhood. Field of artistry. Tua grew up in a big city where his mother was the administrator of a science museum and his father a professor of ecology. Tua would regularly stay in his mother's museum after school. He liked to sit near the displays and sketch pictures, particularly of the natural animal scenes. While his mother taught classes to school groups at the museum, he would sketch her points as if illustrating a book. Tua was always in trouble in school for drawing unrelated pictures of nature instead of paying attention to the class. There were frequent disciplinary meetings between his teachers and parents, and at one point his parents removed all his art supplies for two months as a punishment. When he was 10, Tua started to learn the flute after school, and he would practice daily for many hours. As a teenager, he became interested in film creation. His parents felt he was wasting his time in film and refused to give him any equipment. They were mostly concerned about his failing grades in English and math. Tua finally found some film classes he could take after school without his parents' knowledge, where he would have access to equipment for editing film. He stopped his formal education after high school and apprenticed with various filmmakers until he started experimenting with nature documentaries which combined photography, his own nature paintings, and background flute music. By the time Tua was 30, he was able to work almost entirely from home, other than when he was doing photography or drawing in nature. In this scenario, we find a situation where the nature of the child is quite different from the nature of the parents, which elicits strong disapproval from both his family and teachers. He has to arrange for his own training against his parents' wishes and got his experiences mostly through working on his own desires when he was expected to be doing other things. And lastly, in the field of government, Zaire's parents were dairy farmers near a small town. Zaire loved to play chess from the time she was five and often played against a computer as her parents were not expert. She would watch the History Channel on television and read books on history. She often got into trouble for complaining about things being unfair. Life's not fair was something she heard many times a week. By the time Zaire was 12, she was involved in collecting petitions to change the way cattle were treated in her area, and she volunteered in the local homeless shelter. As a teenager, she joined the high school debate team and student congress and got elected as vice president in the student government. Zaire would complain to the school principal and even the school board about unfair grading and attendance practices. Her parents did not approve of her activism and kept telling her not only that life was unfair, but to mind her own business and to be satisfied with her own life. Zaire took a year off of secondary school to work in a pro bono law office, that's where you work without payment. Got a university degree in history, married a man who became a court judge, and served on the city council of the area when she was raising a family. In this scenario, we again find the difference between the nature of child and parents, with the parents trying to change the child to be more like themselves. Her interest in fairness and happiness and aiding social justice 
are key indicators of her nature. She arranged for her own experiences and also took advantage of formal educational opportunities. Was that helpful? Okay. So, thank you for your patience that we're going late. We have uh, three more areas to look at from Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam about possible problems when using our nature for our livelihood. The first one is what, um, let's see, how do we call this again? Sorry, this is a work in progress. So, the first we call this is getting in the cycle of frustration. The cycle of frustration is called in Sanskrit, Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. You're doing your dharma, you're doing your natural work for your own enjoyment, for your own prosperity, which you use for your enjoyment, but if you do it just for yourself, it gets frustrating and you get sick of it. You're doing what's according to your nature to get your kind of prosperity so you can be happy, but if you're doing it only for yourself, it becomes boring and dissatisfying, and then you want to be free of it. That's the Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha cycle. And the only way to get free of that is to use what we talked about this morning, the other principles of Varna Dharma, where you're actually connecting with the Supreme. Then there's what we call in our book the Shades of Ego. Any idea what we might be talking about? What do you think the Shades of Ego are? Your ego can get bigger or smaller. To be covered by ego, there's three of them. Does that help? What do you think they are? What do you think the three shades of ego are? Goodness, passion, ignorance. Goodness, passion, ignorance. Now, we don't use those terms at all. Uh, we use, we, here we use Sanskrit. We use Sattva, Rajas, and Thomas because we feel that the uh, shades of ego are complex. So how do you know that you're getting covered by the shades of ego in your work? So we have the shade of sattva. The shade of sattva is I am balanced. I am forgiving. I don't care what other people think. I don't care about things. I am just satisfied in myself. That's the, sh- the sattva shade of ego. Then there's the rajas shade of ego. That's I am dutiful. I am responsible. I am moral. I care about fairness. Then there's the Thomas shade of ego. I'm just satisfied with my home and my work. I'm a good person, but I'm also practical. I don't worry so much about the consequences of what I do. I'm also good at dealing uh, with getting back at my enemies. So these shades of ego can naturally trip us up in our career and prevent us from actually using our career in a spiritual way. Now, each one of the fields of work has certain shades of ego that tend to creep in as occupational hazards. You know what an occupational hazard is? Let's say you work with machinery. An occupational hazard is you're likely to get injured. You understand? If I'm a teacher of children, an occupational hazard is I may get sick from the children being sick with so many things. An occupational hazard are that it's as part of your job, 
there may be things as part of your job that also harm you. Is that clear to everybody? Called an occupational hazard. It's a part of your job that can cause you harm. You have to be careful of in your job. So each of the fields of work has a particular shade of ego or a particular combination of the shades of ego that can creep up and kind of cover your awareness. And there's a certain shade of ego that tends to bother people in particular fields of work. Does that make sense to everybody? You can get a particular kind of pride. So in the field of artistry, you can tend to have the shade of ego with, I'm such a simple and satisfied person. I'm so satisfied with my life. I'm so simple. I don't really care about a lot of things. That you can become so simple and so satisfied that you don't care about the consequences of your action. I'm not a very ambitious person. Simple life is fine with me. May end up meaning that you're going to do whatever's easiest, even if the results of that are not good. In the field of resources and the field of government, it's very easy to get tripped up by the Rajas shade of ego. You know, I am a controller. I am managing everything. I'm taking care of everybody. I'm feeding everyone. I'm protecting everybody. I'm really helping society. In the field of ideas, it's very easy to caught up with this, with the shaded ego of I am an equal, balanced, and kind, and merciful, and detached person. All of these are egotistical. All of them separate us from Krishna and from spirituality. And we have to be careful in our field of work that we don't get covered by any of these shades of ego. Now, any shade of ego can trip up anybody in any field of work, but each field of work has a particular shade of ego that tends to trip people up. Now, we talked about, right, as a general principle of Varna Dharma, working without ego, right? Working without ego and without lethargy. All right. The last thing we're going to look at is why we shouldn't work in someone else's field. And it's this section that, how would you say, it uh, explains why there's these four fields at all. Because this was one of my biggest questions. Why does Krishna take all of the hundreds of thousands of careers and categorize them into four categories of fields? Why? Why not six? Why not ten? And why those four? And we can come a little bit to the reason when seeing what happens when somebody crosses fields. Now, if right now you're in the wrong field that's not according to your nature, you should cross fields to go to your own field. Okay? It's not that whatever field you're in, you have to stay in it if it's the wrong field. If you're naturally in the field of artistry and you're working in the field of government, you should go back to your own field. But why should we not work in someone else's field? And, and Krishna's very firm on this. He makes this point twice in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, it's better to be destroyed in your own field than to try to so-called do a good job in someone else's field. Now, whenever we work in someone else's field, we're not going to be happy. Because the mentality to work in another field is not our mentality. 
But we're just going to look at this right now in the interest of time from the point of view of society, not in terms of the individual. On the individual level, whenever we work in a field that's not ours, we will be unhappy, we'll be frustrated, we'll not be able to work the way that we want to work. We'll be working in a way that's very uncomfortable for us. We'll be like wearing clothes that don't fit you. On the level of society, when people in the field where should be in the field of resources work in the field of government, they tend to have the government favor special interests instead of taking care of the citizens as a whole. Because people in the field of resources naturally care about the flow of only special interests. When people naturally in the field of government work in the field of resources, uh, they will not be concerned about profit, but they'll be concerned about helping others. We find there are many businesses that start that have more of a social agenda than a profit agenda. That means that the person running that business is naturally in the field of government. What will happen to those businesses? They're not sustainable. Because they're not making a profit, they will fail. What sometimes happens is when those businesses get bigger, the person sells them to somebody who's actually in the field of resources. When people naturally work in the field of ideas, work in the field of government, they'll probably be more interested in forgiveness than in justice. This is a huge problem in the international society for Krishna consciousness. One of the big things we are missing in the international society for Krishna consciousness is justice, morals, and ethics. And most of the people who are taking a role of government actually belong in the field of ideas. And so they're like, be merciful, be forgiving, and be merciful. But they rape the baby. Oh, be merciful and forgive. Um, people who, go in, who are naturally in the field of ideas, who go in the field of government, find it hard to be decisive, and they may lose the focus on truth. When people naturally in the field of government go into the field of ideas, they will often misuse knowledge for political purposes. They will also often impose a hierarchical structure on knowledge, which, is, which hampers and restricts knowledge. Knowledge, the flow of knowledge has to be in a much more what we call just, um, how would you say, it, it's, it's much more on a peer level when you're dealing with knowledge than in a hierarchical form. When people from the field of ideas work in the field of resources, they're usually too detached to make a profit or even to care about the flow of resources. So they won't manage the resources properly and the businesses will not be sustainable because they won't be profitable. When people from the field of resources work in the field of ideas, they will corrupt truth for profit. This is what happens when advertisements appear to be journalism. When you can't distinguish between journalism and advertisements. That means people in the field of resources have entered into the field of ideas. When people from the field of artistry go into either government or ideas, they have a hard time seeing the big picture. They have a hard time taking the long view. They end up dealing very bureaucratically. So you do want some bureaucrats in business, in a government, and also in the field of ideas as assistants. 
But if the main people working in government are bureaucrats, or the main people working in ideas are bureaucrats, everything becomes stymied and stifled and constricted. When people from the field of government or ideas work in the field of artistry, they will generally be they will generally exhibit insubordination. They will not be willing to follow instructions and they will not be willing to work under authority and it will cause chaos. When people from the field of resources work in the field of artistry, they will automate artistry, artistry and turn it into factories and kill the soul of artistry. When people from the field of artistry work in the field of resources, there'll be great waste and inefficiency because they can't understand the long view or the flow of resources. So this is just looking at what happens when you go into the wrong field on a societal basis. In our book, we look at it from both an individual and a societal point of view, but I don't think I have the time to go through the whole book. So just uh, to review what we did now... So we are meant to work according to our nature, both so we'll be happy and so Krishna will be happy. It's one of the main ways that we can offer our life to Krishna, to earn our livelihood, our source of sustenance from our nature. We can understand our nature by what we've done automatically from childhood, without being asked, without being paid, and even when being criticized. We can understand something of our career by looking at how do we define wealth, do we define wealth in terms of Aishwarya, Virya, Yasa, Sri, Jnana, Vairagya? And in terms of whether we like to work in the field of ideas, government, resources, or artistry. Uh, we looked at the relationship of those. We looked at how the relationship between the six kinds of wealth and the fields. We also looked at one's initial inclinations that indicate one's fields and one's source of wealth as opposed to a person who's become expert in that field and the wealth. We looked at blocks in terms of getting stuck in the cycle of frustration, getting pulled down by the shades of ego, and what happens if we work in the wrong field. So, I hope you found this helpful. Uh, obviously, I cannot possibly give specific career guidance to 35 people in one general class. But I think that there is at least some understanding, at the very least, I hope that everyone has come to appreciate that the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam are giving a very detailed, thorough, um, wise, scientific understanding of how each of us can be happy on an individual level and how society can be prosperous in terms of earning our livelihood in this world and that we can earn our livelihood in this world in a way that becomes part of bhakti yoga, not something separate from bhakti yoga. And that if we were to do this, not only would we become very happy and would our, our basic practices of bhakti, like our chanting and so forth, be much easier to do, but we would also be able to transform the world. So I hope at least you can appreciate that, even if you can't remember all of the particular details and how you would apply that to yourself. So we can take just about, about 10 or 12 minutes. Um, if anybody wants to leave early and get a book, Mahalakshmi does have books at the back table. As I say, we're leaving very early tomorrow morning, so if you do want a book, uh, you can get it tonight or else. You can get it online. So, yes, questions? Yes. Um, how is it that Shudras should not accept 
they should ex accept the salary, but not the others. Vaishyas, Kshatriyas, and Brahmanas, or is that not applicable? Well, probably in 2018, that's not entirely applicable. I mean, if you're going to work as a university professor, you're going to be paid a salary. You know, I, I don't think it would be possible not to do that. I mean, even like when we were running a Gurukula, um, you know, the principle is you're supposed to teach without asking a set amount for people to pay. But people aren't trained to give. You know, you we're working in a culture where people aren't trained to, to give a proper value. And so if you run a Gurukula and you don't charge a set tuition fee, so people will give you a bag of rice. You know? So here you have this building, you have a thousand dollar a month mortgage to pay on your Gurukul building, and people will give you a sari. You know, thank you for teaching my child this month, here's a sari, here's a bag of rice. And, and it's not sustainable. So unfortunately, in order to have things sustainable, sometimes we have to adjust those sort of details. There, there's just no way around it. I mean, there just isn't, you, you, you couldn't work as, as a Brahmana in most professions without drawing a salary. And, you know, Prabhupada talks about the Brahmana who goes to a village and just lives under a tree and just collects rice and tamarind and eats that way. But the government won't even allow you to do that in modern society. You know, you're not even allowed to be a homeless person. You know what I'm saying? You, you have to have a house that meets all the building codes and it's expensive. Like they're trying to start a school here and, you know, to have a building that meets all the government codes for a school. It's just very expensive. Prabhupada said a Brahmin would go into a village and just sit in a corridor under a tree and take students and not charge anything. If you do that here, you're breaking the law. And they'll take the children away and they'll put the children in a regular school. So it's, you know, the, I, I see that those things are details. But the idea is that in the field of ideas, the field of government, and the field of resources, people tend to want a lot of autonomy. They tend to want a lot of control over their life. And many people in those fields are happy to work in a way where they don't have a set income. You know, where, they're, where they don't have you know, a set salary and set benefits and set income. And many of those people, they're much, they're much more able to work in that way. Whereas in the field of artistry, people are much more interested in security. It's harder for them to take the risk of working without a set income. But even in the field of artistry, I mean, especially in, the, in some parts of that field, especially those that deal primarily with beauty, uh, there are many artists who don't have a set income. And they're also living by whatever they can sell to whoever wants to buy it. And they don't have, you know, a standard income from what they're doing. But I see that as a detail. I mean, one of the things that, that Rukmini and I really felt is if we're going to establish the social system from the scriptures, we have to look at what is the difference between universal principles and time, place, and circumstance details. And if we focus on the details then we're stuck after 50 years of ISKCON, we've hardly made any progress in this at all. Isn't it? Right? Because we're just endlessly talking about the details. Most of which cannot be brought over into our present situation. It just feels that, uh, especially for Brahmanas, it's necessary for them to be independent and speak the truth. Ideally, somebody in the field of ideas 
is not under the control of anyone in the field of government or the field of resources. It would be rare that someone in the field of ideas is under the control of someone in the field of artistry. It would be a very strange situation. But at the same time, you know, it, it's very, very difficult to survive in 2018 in the field of ideas without some sort of set occupation. It's not easy at all. You know, and if you demand that of people, many times they're just not going to be able to live. If you say to people, hey, you're in the field of ideas, you absolutely may not be dependent on anybody else. They may not be able to function. They may not be available to them. I mean, just like I'm talking about being a university professor. So we have a number of ISKCON devotees who become university professors in the field of religion. And they're using that position as university professors to publish books on bhakti and to teach bhakti. But they're getting a salary. They're being maintained by the university institution. And they are, because of that, somewhat constrained with what they can say. It's a fact. It's not that they're not. They are. It does limit their ability to speak truth. It's a shame. But what are they going to do? It's just, you know, Krishna does say in the Bhagavad Gita that every endeavor is covered by some kind of fault, like smoke is covering fire. So it's much more important that they're working according to their nature, that they're following the principles, the main principles of Varna Dharma, that they're dedicating their work to the Supreme. That's much more important. Otherwise, what would, do you understand what I'm saying? How else would they do it? It's just, it's not available to them. Yes? What do you think about brahmacharis? So should they care too much about these things, about career, or they should just depend on the elder person? Okay, so now you want to ask about ashram dharma. So we do have one chapter in the book about the relationship between varna dharma and ashram dharma. We talk about career and the life cycle. Um, the brahmachari ashram, traditionally is for children and teenagers only. <coughs> the Brahmachari Ashram means a school. That's what the Brahmachari Ashram means. In traditional society, very, very few people stayed in the Brahmachari Ashram after they graduated from school. It would be extremely unusual. They might stay as, you know, running a, a monastery or or serving a sannyasi, just like in any tradition. How many people are lifetime monks living in a monastery and just studying. In the Brahmacharya Ashram, you don't teach. You're only studying. You may be helping other students, but you're not acting as a teacher. You're completely dependent on the guru. Basically, you're living like a child. Does that make sense? So, Srila Prabhupada says in the second canto that in the Brahmacharya Ashram, you should learn uh, general values of life along with taking specific training for a livelihood. So that's in the second canto of the Bhagavatam. You can look up specific training for a livelihood. So in the Brahmachari Ashram, all of the students should be getting specific training for a livelihood. Srila Prabhupada speaking on the Brahmachari Ashram and Gurukul Prabhupada was going back and forth between these two in lectures in Mumbai in 1976 on the seventh canto. Prabhupada said that the brahmachari should not think, oh, I know about Krishna consciousness, I should not know anything about the world and be callous toward the world. He says, no, 
the devotee must be daksha or expert. He says, this means that the brahmachari, the student, should know something of everything and everything of something. It's really a shame that in our gurukulas in the 70s and the early 80s we did not do this, and that in most of our brahmachari ashrams in this kind we do not do this. We take the brahmacharis as cheap labor, frankly. Brahmachari ashram is for study. It's for study. It's for study. That's the dharma of the brahmachari ashram. One should be studying the scriptures, learning the values of life, and getting specific training for a livelihood. Why? Because most brahmacharis are going to move on to the grahastha ashram. When they leave, you don't want them leaving the brahmachari ashram and like, okay, now what do I do? They should leave the brahmachari. Just like in modern education, when you finish your schooling, you have a career. And that should be done. When you finish the brahmachari ashram, you should have your career. Your teachers, your people who guide you in the brahmachari ashram should be helping you to understand what is your nature, should be helping you to understand what is your fields of work, what is your kind of wealth that you enjoy, where do you fit, giving you specific training so when you graduate, you can have your career and you can go on and maintain a family. By the time you're 24, 25, Prabhupada said brahmachari ashram is still 24, 25. He says this is very unpopular, but so you don't have to listen to this. If you don't want to, just ignore it. But Prabhupada says there should be compulsory marriage for men by the time by the age of 24 maximum. So by the time a, a man is 24, man, woman, 20, 24, the, the latest, you should be able to decide, do I want to get married or not? That is not a decision to make when you're 30 or 35 or 40 or 45 or 65. That is a decision to make at the latest by 24, 25. Ideally, you've made that decision by 18 or 20. But 24, 25, that is the latest. The decision should be made then. If you decide that you're not, that you're not meant for marriage, which should be decided very carefully, most people should get married. You should have to fight to remain unmarried. Huh? You don't want to artificially stay in the Brahmacharya ashram till you're 45 and then decide that you need to get married. And then you're still raising children when you're 70. And you haven't developed a career. And how many people do this in ISKCON? And I'm sorry if I've offended anybody, but, you know, everybody can love Krishna and go back to Godhead. But if you've decided that marriage is not for you, which means you don't need to draw energy from the opposite sex in order to be a balanced and happy person, you don't find yourself uh, sneaking, drawing energy from the opposite sex, emotional, psychological, and so forth. You don't want to have a career. All this talk about Varna Dharma is only done in the Grahasta Ashram. Even in the world, students, retired people, and dead people don't have careers. In order to skip the Grahasta Ashram, you also have to skip Varna Dharma. So skipping the Grahasta Ashram means I don't need to pull energy from the opposite sex, and I'm not even trying to do it subtly. I'm a balanced person. I can be a balanced person with, you know, each of us have some male and female energies. You all know that, right? Like astrologically speaking, nobody is 100% male or 100% female. 
So I have, I, I have the energies balanced within me. I don't have to draw from the opposite sex. I don't want to have my own place. I don't want to have my own money. And I don't want to interact with the world in terms of a varna. I don't have a need for it. Generally, when we're young, we have a strong, strong desire for these things. Generally, we have a strong desire for a relationship, a romantic relationship. We generally have a strong desire to have our own money and our own independence. And we generally have a strong desire to do something in the world, to contribute in some way. So if you don't have those, then you can look at going directly from the Brahmacharya Ashram to the Vanaprastha Ashram. Technically, Shastrically, you could go directly to the Sanyas Ashram, but we don't allow that in Iskand. You can't take Sanyas till you're at least 45. So if you're going to not go into the Grahastha Ashram, go into the Vanaprastha Ashram. What does that mean? You stop becoming a helpless, dependent child in a school. You start taking responsibility in the mission. Basically, you're happy just with the 64 Angas of Bhakti, as again, you don't need to do a Varna. And you're just working full-time for the mission. The Vanaprastha and the Sannyasi make the world their family. Prabhupada says renunciation is not narrowing, it's broadening. Instead of taking responsibility for one wife and a few children, you're taking responsibility for dozens or hundreds of people. You're no longer dependent that the guru is just maintaining you in the ashram like you're a dependent child. You develop your own projects, maybe your own fundraising for the projects. You go out and do something wonderful for Lord Chaitanya's mission. You take all of that energy that you would have poured into a career and a family and you pour it into the mission as an independent, mature, adult person. To have mature, adult human beings living like dependent children is very strange and artificial. Again, some people will do that. In every tradition, you have some people who lifetime stay in a monastery. I mean, even for materialistic people, you have some people who get, you know, three PhDs and then they do postdoc research and they're always studying and researching. They never even become teachers. They're lifetime students. So some, there are people who are going to be lifetime students in the brahmachari ashram. But for most lifetime brahmacharis, in terms of celibacy, they need to move out of that ashram. One of the most wonderful things we could do for ISKCON would be if our older people who are brahmacharis were to take responsibility in the preaching movement. And people who, who aren't suited for marriage and career shouldn't do it. You'll be a terrible husband or a terrible wife if you're not really suited for marriage. You just make a mess of the whole thing. Or if you don't want to have a career, if you're forced to do it, you'll just make a mess of it. So if you're really suited for renunciation, and then and do it in some wonderful way. I really believe that our kind of imposing a brahmachari ashram on older people ends up pushing people who aren't suited for marriage to get married later in life. The people, you know, they want to do something as an adult. And you feel the only way to do that is get married. So then, you know, 45, 50, there they are getting married. But they're not, they're not marriageable people. They don't belong in marriage. They're, they're renunciates. And just like somebody who should marry and should have a career makes a mess if they stay in a renounced ashram, so people who are actually renounced make a whole mess if they get married. Does that make sense? 
But generally in the Brahmacharya Ashram, one should get specific training for a livelihood. That's Prabhupada's instructions. Because most Brahmacharis will marry. And if you're a true renunciate, none of them will appeal to you. You won't want any varna. You won't want any career. You won't want a livelihood. You won't want to affect the world. You won't want to go out and work in the world. Is it anything? Does that make sense? That requires some introspection. It requires some very good guidance. And, and a, it, we have a problem in our movement is that we, we equate being in a renounced ashram with being advanced in bhakti, which is actually one of the ways in Manashiksha that Bhakti Vinod says is bathing in donkey urine to equate a renounced ashram with advancement in bhakti. So I see that there are people who stay in a renounced ashram way past the time that they should just because they think it's more prestigious or more advanced. What's more advanced is doing what's suitable for you at the right time. That's more advanced. And if what's suitable for you is to be in a renounced ashram, work according to our nature. Do what's real, do what's authentic. Is that all right? We worship the absolute truth, so we should be also truthful. Yes, Prabhupada. No, that's not true. In all the varnas, you want to affect the world. Uh, no, in the renounced order, sorry. The person in the renounced order will not... Not through a career, no. Through a career, that's what you mean. Mm-hmm. See, you they know, may want to affect the world through preaching, yeah. but they don't want to change the world through career. If somebody is thinking, okay, I'm a preacher, I want to start, you know, an old age home. Mm-hmm. Oops. Field of government. Varna, get married. <laughs> if the way that, that you want to spread Krishna consciousness in the world is in a Varna, then you're not in a renounced ashram. The Varnas apply to Grahastas. Now, there's a little bit of a difficulty because some of the activities of some of the Varnas are also Angas of Bhakti. So if you like to do kirtans, are you in the field of artistry using music in Krishna's service? Are you a renunciate doing shravanam kirtanam? You follow? Which is it? It can be hard to tell. If you're in the field of ideas, you can also be collecting charity. You could be a fundraiser and distributing charity. But you might do that as a renunciate. Or you might be worshipping the deity and teaching others how to worship the deity as your livelihood. It's one of the livelihoods of the field of ideas. But that's also one of the angas of bhakti. So how do you know on those areas of overlap? How do you know if your inclination is a varna and a career, which means you should be in the grahasta ashram, or if it's simply a taste for a particular anga of bhakti. Anyone have any idea? How do you know the difference? Well, 
Yes. You want to enjoy the fruits of your labor. You want to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Okay. But we're saying that Varna Dharma means that you give up that ego of enjoying the fruits of your labor, that you enjoy through Krishna. You're not under the shades of ego. So somebody really in Varna Dharma is not wanting to enjoy the fruits of their labor. But that was a good try. That's true for a materialist. We're so talking about a bhakti. How do you know for some there are some items in some of the varnas that are practically identical to some of the sixty-four angas of bhakti? How do you know whether you're doing that as a varna, as varna dharma, or whether you're doing it as as just one of the sixty-four angas of bhakti? If if you're attached to it, well, even at the stage of ruchi, you're attached to your service. So, another good try. Are we supposed not to be attached to our service? At some level, we... At the stage of a shakti, you're attached to Krishna more than to the service itself. In ruchi, you're very attached to the service. You get taste from the service. At a shakti, your attachment is more to Krishna. Of course, you're attached to your service in the sense that this is what I'm offering to Krishna... But the the feeling is to Krishna. This is one is this is what I'm offering to Krishna. The other is this is what I'm offering to Krishna. It's a little different. Anyone else have any idea? This is an important question which relates to a whole other range of discussion, like should people get paid for their service? Otherwise, very, very connected. If it's your Varna Dharma, then should you get Paid for your varna? Should you get paid? Should you get some kind of payment for your varna? This is an obvious question, folks. Yes. yes. Otherwise, it's not your varna. <laughs> your varna means your means of livelihood. It's how you're maintaining yourself. So that's one of the big demarcations. Are you maintain? Is this how you're maintaining yourself? And yeah, there's something about in Varna Dharma about impacting the social body that isn't really there in the Angas of Bhakti. In the Angas of Bhakti, I, I'm really just trying to please Krishna. I'm not really trying to improve the social body. Does that make sense to you? Do you, do you feel like the, the, kind of a subtle difference there? It's subtle. But I'm, not, I'm, I'm concerned with just, just pleasing Krishna. No, but in the Varna Dharma, I'm, I'm concerned with changing the social body. And I'm, I'm functioning as part of the social body. It's, it's a little different. But one main demarcation is, is it my livelihood or not? It is my livelihood. Is it my means of sustenance? Is it how I'm living? In one sense, yes, I'm enjoying the fruit, but I'm enjoying them through Krishna. It's a hard question to answer, but it is a difference. Am I doing kirtan because this is my livelihood? And I'm Krishnaizing my livelihood. I'm a musician by livelihood, and I'm Krishnaizing my livelihood. Or I don't have a livelihood. 
I don't have a livelihood. I don't have a means of sustenance. In the renounced order, do you have a means of sustenance? No. How do you live? Everybody lives by Krishna's grace. Donations, people give you... Or, you know, the gurus maintaining you in the ashram, or... But you don't see that there's a connection. I'm doing this to maintain myself. This is my livelihood. It's not like that. It's a, it's a very different mentality. Do you mean that Varna Dharma is like Karma Yoga? I certainly hope not. Varna Dharma is Karma Yoga if you're working for the universal form. But if you're working for Bhagavan, it's Bhakti Yoga. So if you're doing your Varna Dharma with the sense, and we can say this to people in general, we can, you know, if someone's like they don't believe in God, we can say, well, work for the universe. That's all right. We believe that God has a universal form, yeah? Yeah? Is that cool? You have your place in the universal body, you're working for the good of the universal body, dedicate everything to the universal body, that's karma yoga. And that's okay. We don't mind if people in general are acting in that. But if, if we're doing Varna Dharma, we're doing it for Bhagavan, I hope, yeah? We're not just doing it for the universal form. That's an expression of our bhakti. But we're still doing it for our livelihood. It's, it's a subtle difference, but it is a difference. If I'm just doing the angas of bhakti, I want to change the world just through the sound of kirtan but I don't want to change the world through a career. Let's say I'm, I'm a musician who, who sings kirtans. So then I'm interested in affecting the music industry, aren't I? Right? Maybe I want to have a big selling CD. I, I'm, I'm interested in affecting that field. I'm working in that field of work. And I want to change and impact that field. Field. If I'm a renunciate doing kirtan, I probably have zero interest in affecting the field of music. I don't care. And I'm not doing kirtan as my means of livelihood. I'm not doing it to sustain me. It's not my job. I don't have a job. I'm a renunciate. I don't have a job. I just do bhakti. I'm doing kirtan to affect the social body, but not in terms of a field of work. Does that make any sense at all? It's, it's a subtle difference, but it's a noticeable difference. Do you, do you kind of get that? If you want to go and affect the fields of work and go into the fields, you're not a renunciate. Just be honest. Honesty is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Much, much, much better, Prabhupada says, to be an honest sweeper, right, than a charlatan meditator. So, millions of times better to be honest. Krishna is the supreme honest, and if you're not honest with him, it doesn't work very well. And as I say, if you're actually renunciate, don't get married and have a career. What a stupid thing to do. The person you marry won't be happy with you anyway. 
I go, you know, can't you just get into your role? And you're like, no. <laughs> You know, we have stories in our tradition of, of you know, because Indian society, they almost forced the young men and women to get married. And we have instances of people like, you know, just, that wasn't their thing. They just, they wouldn't do it. They just ran away, like Raghunath Swami, you know, just like, I don't want to do this. I'm going to eat old stale rice and Jagannath Puri. And then the poor girl is just left, you know what I'm saying? Is that clear? Or is it still fuzzy? Clearer or fuzzy? It's more clear than in the beginning of the lecture. Okay. It's, this is a difficult thing. This is, I mean, some things are clearly Varnadharma, and some things are clearly an Anga of Bhakti. I mean, some things are just, there's no question what it is. And other things, it's just like, is that Brahmana Dharma, Varna Dharma, or is it an Angar Bhakti? Is that, is that, you know, Shudra Varna Dharma, or is it an Angar Bhakti? Some things are really, they're not clear. And I, I see that this lack of clarity is where we have this problem of should we pay people for service question. That, that's where that question comes from. Does that make sense? It's like, oh my God, you're getting paid to do kirtan. Well, if you're a musician, if that's your career, would it be better to sing mundane love songs to make your livelihood and do kirtan for free? Would that make any sense? So if your career is as a musician... Prabhupada didn't object to George Harrison making money from chanting Hare Krishna. He didn't say, you know, you can chant Krishna's name, but don't get any money from your records. That would be ridiculous. But if you're doing something as an anga of bhakti and expecting to be paid for it, that's also, that's wrong. Then you become, you know, a professional devotee rather than a real devotee. But how to distinguish between Yeah, makes sense? Yes. You know, if you're if you're a if you're a, pr- a priest, you're a professional priest, that's what you do. You do some scars for people and you do yogis for people and that's how you maintain your family. Then you should get some donation for it. If you're a renunciate and you're doing it then you shouldn't. I, I, it came uh, to my idea that what I try to do in our country is that I try to encourage devotees who have some uh, professional skills in some area, uh-huh. usually Vedic area, that they do things for money. I'm, what I'm doing actually is I'm organizing different educational programs across Slovenia and encourage them that they go and teach people what they know and get paid for it. To go and teach people what they know and get paid for. But then it, then it becomes a Brahmana, Varna, Dharma. Yes. Which is fine. Exactly. 
which is completely fine. I mean, sometimes Prabhupada would insist on getting paid for things. Um, Sometimes, like, when Prabhupada would do some preaching programs, he would say, if they don't pay, we're not going to go. Because he knew if they didn't pay, they wouldn't value what he was doing. So, just like he didn't want us giving out the books for free, he wanted people to pay for the books. So there's there's some things like that, but Prabhupada doesn't want that didn't want devotees seeing bhakti as a profession. If if you start thinking, you know, I'm going to do bhakti as a profession, you're going to ruin the whole thing. If you're going to say I'm going to bhaktiize my profession, that's beautiful. If I'm going to professionalize my bhakti, that's terrible. Does everybody kind of get that? You know, it, 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 it matters which way you go. I just want to ask to do that, to confirm what you're saying there also. We came to a point when we said, okay, can we actually make a marketing and, and sell these things? And we had to make some lines somewhere. Say, okay, this is something that is teachable and we can sell as a uh-huh. profession. But, you know, some knowledge that we talk about, bhakti yoga and such things, this is for free. And these lectures are good. Well, that's an interesting point, though. What are you going to do with, you know, Krishna Kshetra Maharaj, who was a professor in, in a university in Hong Kong, Radhika Raman, Krishna Vishay, Garuda. These people are professors in universities. They are teaching Bhagavad Gita, and they're getting paid for it. Should they refuse to get paid for it? I don't think that I don't think that's where you want to make the line. You want to make the line is 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 this a grahasta doing a varna dharma? If they're doing a varna dharma, they're supposed to get prosperity in exchange for their dharma. That's what there's that's it's their livelihood. That's the whole point. And you're supposed to Krishnaize your dharma. Don't we want everybody in the world to Krishnaize their occupation? If every single person in the world Krishnaized their occupation, would that be a good or a bad thing? A very good thing. Would they be making a living from their occupation? Or would they all become poor? they would still make a living. So we want, we would like all seven billion people in the world to follow the principles of Varna Dharma and Krishnaize their Varna. Yes? Is there, anybody disagree with this? Okay. For some people that means giving up their occupation if they're a slaughterhouse person or alcohol. A few occupations. And it's their occupation, so they have to get a means of living from it. They must, otherwise it's not their livelihood. So we want that. Now, would that look exactly the way things look right now? Probably not. There would probably be some more barter and donations and things that would look a little different from the way it looks right now. Is there... If something fits within the varnas then it, is, it can be used as a livelihood. So if it fits within the Brahmana's varna, a 
according to Shastra, then a Grihastha Brahmana can make a living from doing that thing. What you don't want is you don't want people taking up bhakti as a profession. I gave you a, a very simple example. I read about this one man who uh, was a Christian preacher, and that was how he supported his family as a Christian preacher. At a certain point, he lost his faith in God. He became an atheist. But he was still continuing to preach Christianity as his occupation. And his wife at one point said to him, if you can be a professional Christian, you could be a professional atheism, atheist. Why don't you make your livelihood preaching atheism? And that's exactly what he did. So when he was preaching Christianity after he became an atheist, he was making a profession of being a Christian. That should never happen. That should just never happen. You know, Prabhupada talks about the professional Bhagavatam reciters. They recite the Bhagavatam as an occupation, and then they smoke cigarettes. Nobody should do the angas of bhakti as their job, as just something I do to make a living, and I really don't care about Krishna, I really don't care about bhakti, I have another life, I have another concern, and I'm just doing this to make a living. That pollutes everything. But that, should, that problem should not be confused with the idea that we should Krishnaize our varna. Everything in our varna should be Krishnaized. As long as it's not something sinful. If it's a proper varna, it's not sinful. So if it's within the realm of Brahman, Satri, Vaisha, Shudra, if it's in the scriptures, it should be Krishnaized and it should be the means of our maintenance. Now if you're going to say a Brahmana shouldn't charge, yes, technically speaking, a Brahmana shouldn't charge for anything. But then you have to be in a society where people donate appropriately. And I'll tell you right now, even in ISKCON, in many places people do not donate appropriately. In some places they do, but in many places they don't. Why do they not? Why do they not donate appropriately? Donate appropriately. Let me give you a very simple example. So let's say you have a temple where some of the pujaris, full-time pujaris, that's all they do all day, are grahastas. Do the people who visit that temple give donations to those pujaris? That is a problem. They give donations to the temple, and the temple then maintains the pujaris. It ends up being a kind of salary that they get from the temple. Prabhupada didn't like that. It's not a good idea. If we were trained that we would give donations to those people, they wouldn't need to draw a salary. They wouldn't need to? Draw a salary. But we're, we're not trained to do that. We don't do it. When, when, when Grihasta devotees, who have to maintain a family, are doing full-time work for the institution, the members of the institution do not generally give donations to them which forces them to be in a position of either not doing full-time service to the institution or collecting a salary from, or some kind of regular maintenance from the institution. 
what do you do? Then you have to say, sorry, don't work full-time for the institution. Well, then you've just lost a great full-time worker for the institution. Wait, work for the institution for free? How, how will you do that practically? Unless you know you have a rich father who left you a million euros or something. You follow what I'm saying? How, how are you going to do that? But what does that mean? Live in a tent? I mean, how are you even going to buy the tent? What does it mean? So if, if we want a culture like that, then it has to be holistic. If you say to people, you're in the Brahmin Varna, don't charge anything, then you've got to teach the devotees to donate to people in the Brahmin Varna. We don't do that. I don't know any place that does that. I don't know any place that teaches the devotees to donate to people in the Grahastas in the Brahmana Varna who are doing full-time service for the mission. I, I haven't seen it anywhere. Anywhere at all. Yes? Is it possible to be in the Varna Dharma therefore trying to impact the world and not be married? It's possible, but the, the concept of, of Varna Dharma is, one of them is charity. And so one is supposed to be giving charity at least to one's family. Also, the same impetus that pushes us to have a Varna Dharma and work in the world is very much related to a lot of what involves the Grahasta Ashram. So if people are doing a Varna Dharma and not married, I bet you they have a house or an apartment. I bet you they have their own bank account and their own money. In other words, they may have the, a lot of the trappings of the Grahasta Ashram. And then you have to ask, well, why don't they have the partner? What's keeping them from getting the partner? Why, why do they want all the, you know, are they trying to just like enjoy the benefits of the Grahasta Ashram without the responsibilities? It's a question. Again, we're in a kind of funny situation where some people who really, really don't want to get married also want to have a varna. And I've met people like that. They like intensely do not want to get married at all. But they want to have a varna and they want to have a house and they want to have a car and they want to have a bank account. And I usually say to these people, well, Just renounce it, expanding like from family to uh, broader society. Yeah, but then you're not then you're not going to do it in terms of varna. Then you're going to do it in terms of from the renounced ashram. See, each ashram has its pleasures and its austerities, and the pleasure of the renounced ashram is primarily freedom. <coughs> but the the payment you have to do for that freedom is you don't have your own house and you don't have your own bank account and you don't have your own career and you don't have some... You know what I'm saying? There's a, there, everything has its, its appropriate payment. So when we try to enjoy something without paying the appropriate payment, it, it doesn't work so well. I mean, Bhakti's independent. You know, most of us are messed up in some way. Honestly. I know very few people who, you know, have everything according to Shastra in terms of Varna Nasha. But if, we, if we're talking about the principle of the thing, the principle of the thing is if I want to enjoy career, then I also take the responsibility of the thing. 
You can understand the other way. If I want to enjoy family, I take the responsibility of a career. But it works in both directions. People will be happier, frankly. They'll be happier, they'll be more stable. They'll be more balanced. But if people refuse, oh well. Just chant Hare Krishna and read the Bhagavatam. Don't worry about it. Seriously, I mean, the Angas of Bhakti are not dependent on any of this. So why talk about this at all? Why not just do the Angas of Bhakti? If the Angas of Bhakti aren't dependent on any of this stuff, why, why even bother? Why does the Bhagavatam that throws out cheating religion even talk about this at all? Because most people during their youth of life want a career. They want to express their psychophysical nature somewhere where they're interacting with the fields of work. They want to do that. They're going to do it anyway. Does that make sense? So how to do it in bhakti? How to do it in a way that it becomes part of your bhakti? And we also talk about it because we want to spiritualize society. And there's no way to spiritualize society without that. There's no way to have a spiritual society without them. You just can't do it. You know, if we can't follow all the principles of the Shastra, follow what you can. Bhakti is not dependent on the principles of Varna or Ashram. It's just not. You can have a really messed up Ashram situation and a really messed up Varna situation. You can still love Krishna. It'll, it'll be a little harder, but you can still love it. You know, if those things are messed up, you're going to find it hard to deal in the world as a devotee, which is what is happening to a lot of people. They would find it hard to, to balance their, their whole life. But you may get troubled by desires at the wrong time. You know, there you are, 65, and you're like, oh my God, I need to get married. And if you think that doesn't happen, you know, it does. You know, the woman, it's like she's 48. Oh my God, i got to have a baby. You know. uh, <laughs> I need many, many devotees like this. I met like five in two weeks, just recently. You know, I'm 45 and I can't have a baby. When did you get married? When I was 41. Better to not do that. But. but anyway, bhakti's not dependent on whether or not these things are messed up. But it just, your life won't be as happy. <laughs> it won't be as easy. It won't, won't, it, won't, it won't work as well. And we'll have a really, really hard time bringing Krishna consciousness to the world. If we just say to the world, you know, just chant, dance, and feast. Okay, well, what do I do with my house? What do I do with my family? What do I do with my education? What do I do? Oh, that's all Maya. You know, it makes it a little difficult to spiritualize society. So, in principle, career is meant for people who are married. People who are married should have a career, people who have a career should be married. That's, that's a Shastric principle. Is everybody going to follow that principle? No. Call you, what do you want? But that, that's the basic principle. Sorry. I, I've been trying to avoid talking about ashram. I 
find and talk about ashram. Our ashram dharma is very controversial and uncomfortable. People don't like it. They don't accept it. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I, I really try to avoid talking about ashram dharma. People in the world don't want to hear it at all, in any way, shape, or form. Everything in the modern world is pushing hard against ashram dharma. And most devotees don't want to hear it either. I find very few devotees that want to hear anything about, actually anything about ashram dharma. So, try to avoid it. I, I don't think ashram dharma is something that we're going to be able to bring to the world in 2018. I, I wouldn't even try it. But Varna Dharma, I think we can bring that to the world now. I think people, you know, these principles are things that most people would go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'd like to do that. Yeah, that would help the world. People can get that and go, yeah, okay. And if they're in a Varna when they're single or when they're 70 or whatever, whatever. (laughs) I'm not going to go there with that. Right, so I, I, I really try not to get very much into ashram dharma right now. I'd rather talk about bhakti and varna dharma. Too, too sensitive. People are too touchy about it. They get all offended. It's, it's we're not we, we're really not doing it very well. Sorry. Really, really not doing it. That that piece very well. So I think we should stop now. It's supposed to be a wild, raging kirtan going on tonight. So thank you very much.